Welcome to the Landmark Church Weekly Podcast. Anyways, um, so if you don't know who I am, my name is Corbin Austin. I'm the youth pastor here. Um, I've been here for about a year and a half, a little over. Thank you for letting me stay here. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. It means you kind of like me, I think, so thank you for that. Um, so um, uh, I want, real quick thing, I have a bone to pick with Pastor Justin. We did a sermon series last month called the Gospel According to Marvel. And if you know me, if you talk to me for five seconds, you know that I love Marvel. It's just, I mean, like, there's the gospel in my life, my wife, my dog, Marvel. So it's down the list, but it's like number four, it's top five. So, um, but I could have preached one of those sermons, he didn't let me. And last week was Spider-Man. If you know me, I think almost every time I've spoke, I mentioned Spider-Man in some way. Probably not this time, though, I don't think. I actually am now, so I actually, I messed it up. So, um, but he preached on Spider-Man last week, and I thought he was going to let me. I missed it by one week. But I think I know why. It's because if I would have done it, I wouldn't have talked about the gospel. I would have talked about Spider-Man and, and lore and stuff like that. And I would have preached in a Spider-Man suit, and you guys would have came and got saved if I just promised to get out of the suit. Because um, there was Spider-Man here last week. It fit him. It wouldn't have fit me the same way. So anyways, there you go. Uh, we got a couple uh, important announcements, and then we'll move right into the, the sermon. Um, two things. There's a Hope Center fundraiser gala. You can say that like three different ways, but I'm going to say gala. Gala, 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 tomato, tomato, you know, that sort of stuff. There's a fundraiser happening, um, and there's different sponsorships you can do, and they're all, they also work as your tickets. So there's four different sponsorships. There's a table out back when you leave. If you're interested in doing that, it helps fundraise to take care of the girls, take care of the ministry these sorts of things. Secondly, there's uh, military care packages still out there. Last week, I think I counted today, we had 100 last week, and y'all actually rock and rolled it last week. I think we only have 26 names left. I think if I counted right, I'm not sure. Um, so we still have some to take. So what we're asking you to do there is to take a name. There are some soldiers on a boat. They've been there for months, correct? And they're going to be there probably for some more months as well, a while. Um, and so a big, uh, not, yeah, it's a ship, not a boat. It's not a little tiny, but it's a huge ship, but still they're there. Um, and so we just want them to know they're not forgotten, and we love them. So we're asking you to take the name, pray over that name, and then secondly, to provide some sort of care package. There's a list there, I believe, of things you can get. And if you'd prefer the church to get it, we don't mind doing that. Just earmark your tithes envelope, or there's a link on our online giving that will help you do that as well. We cool? We good? Sweet. That's what I do to the youth, so it's just in my nature anyway. So, okay. So as youth pastor at Landmark Church, we actually went over our marked youth, that's our name, is marked youth. We went over our vision and mission, and let me tell you, they were so excited on Wednesday night to talk about vision and mission, but we had to do it because we've been called marked youth for a while. Uh, one, because we're called Landmark Church, and so I think I'm clever, so I came up with marked youth. One pastor goes, Mark of the Beast? And I was like, no, man, no, we're supposed to be distinct as Christians. So we talked about that on Wednesday night, we're supposed to be distinct, to stand out, to kind of be highlighted or pinpoints of God's kingdom wherever we go. That's what marked youth means. And I just think I'm clever. My wife rolls her eyes every time. Like he's, he came up with that. He's so proud of it. Um, thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> cute. I want it to be powerful and cute, I guess. Anyway, so um, it's my passion, though, to have our youth think about the world around them and the world that's happening within them. Right, the process what's going on around and what's going on within, not to just go with the flow, to actually process what's happening. Because I didn't do that when I was a kid and I got myself into some funk, okay? I got myself into some issues when I didn't think and process and actually live not from my get. I'm kind of doing that now if you look at me for a little longer. Um, but like now, I live from the depths of me, right, from who Jesus has called me to be. And so I don't want to live just by the rhythms of secular or Christian culture, but from the depths of who God has created them to be. And so we did a sermon series, and what we did in this sermon series, and this is leading us to what we're going to talk about today, is we looked at common cultural cliches. I'm just going to give you a sneak peek. It's a, same, it's a shameless plug to where if you have a youth kid and they don't come, this is what we do. Okay, we look at things biblically, and this is what we did. So we looked at four common cultural cliches, and this is what we talked about. First, we talked about good vibes only. 
Anybody ever seen this on Instagram or anything like that? Good vibes only, bro. It was really big in the 60s and 70s. Thanks, hippies. Um, but they were big. it was big there. And where it comes from is kind of mean, but it was this wannabe astrologist. And he said that everything in the universe vibrates in some way and either gives off positive vibes or negative vibes. And so what you have to do as a human being is figure out where the positive vibes are for you and where the negative ones are. That's all he gave us. I mean, he didn't tell us where to find them or how to do it. So I was like, thanks, Copernicus, for nothing, man. Thank you. Um, so um, that happened, and it really didn't do much. But then, like I said, the hippies got a hold of it. Peace, love, and happiness, bro. Um, they got a hold of it, and uh, it became good vibes only. Like, don't mess up my vibe, man. Don't, don't mess me up. Don't put any sadness in my life. And really what it means is, is that only in your life you want good things, positive things, happy things. And I can track with that. We don't want to be down and depressed all the time. Surely, especially as Christians, it says rejoice all the time, but rejoicing is different than a good vibe, because good vibe is circumstantial, and rejoicing is based on the character of who God is. And so, um, it doesn't work, because then we see in Matthew 5, 4, Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn. Um, and then he says they will be comforted. And I don't know about you guys, but um, mourning doesn't always feel so blessed in the moment, right? Now, some of you might be thinking morning, like right now, it's 9.45, right? You're thinking, this is not a blessed moment. And for my wife, she's all happy in the morning. She's like, oh, you're so cute. And I'm like, get away from me. Like, I'm trying to sleep here. I'm just back off. So anyways, um, she'll be in here next service, and I'll get a tomato thrown at me or something from her. Um, so I'll, I will say it again. Um, but so we see that uh, blessedness, uh, there's mourning, and that means like um, crying, grieving, these sorts of things. Mourning for the, our world not being the way it's supposed to be, and then even ourselves not being the way we're supposed to be mourning for those things, crying out to God to change us, to change our world, and hoping for that restoration when the heavens and the earth are made new. And then secondly, we saw that you can't be a compassionate person if you're a good vibes only person. Because in order to be a compassionate person, you have to get into the muck and the mire with other people. You have to be willing to get into the ugly situations. And when you're a good vibes only person, that's not going to be your thing. Or you'll do this, we're going to talk about this in a second, in James where somebody's going through something and you say, be blessed, bro. It doesn't do anything for them. I mean, you didn't, you didn't pray for them. You didn't help them. You didn't give them anything. It doesn't do anything for anyone. And so we saw it just doesn't work. Second one, this one's one of my favorites. It's kind of funny. Is, um, second uh, cultural cliche is follow your heart. Please don't. Um, I'm, I'm just begging you. Please don't. Um, it's, it's really mamby-pamby. And I'm not trying to be a jerk or just a know-it-all 26-year-old here. I'm really not. Um, but it doesn't work. Here's the thing. What we do, and the youth have heard this, so sorry you're hearing this, but we act like our heart is some sort of deity within us that just knows our destiny and knows where we're going to go and how it's going to work out. Um, it's grafted into you. Like, it's part of you. It's who you are. You can't get away. It's not some sort of deity within you. And so you'll see on Instagram, Instagram is just, I mean, don't get your theology from there. It's, it's a dangerous place to get your theology. We're doing a sermon series on that in November. Another shameless plug. Um, so here we go. You'll see quotes like this. Follow your heart, and you'll never get lost. Might get dumped, but you won't get lost. Um, here we go. Follow your heart. It knows the way. No? I mean, if you don't know the way, your heart doesn't know the way. It just, it doesn't work. It's mamby-pamby. It's this thing that makes us feel good and it works in a rom-com, but in reality, it doesn't. We don't see this on Instagram. Here we go. Typical theologian, make everybody depressed. Here we go. Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is more deceitful than anything else and utterly wicked. Who can understand it? You don't see that on Instagram, right? Because what it does, and we're going to talk about this in a second, is it assumes our heart are these moral great things on their own. And this is talking about a heart that's separated from God. If you're in line with Christ, of course, you still got to watch your heart. It'll lead you some snares and stuff like that. You still got to be careful. Anyways, what we, what we came to the conclusion was, though, is we give our hearts to Jesus 
I want to fight cliches with cliches, but it's going to sound cliche. Sorry. We give our hearts to Jesus. We follow him. We follow his heart, not our own. Here we go. Next one is live your truth. You can see to speak your truth, this sort of stuff. Dangerous. I'll give this one the benefit of the doubt. What this one means is, is that you just be true to who you are, right? And I can track with that a little bit um, because I don't, the Bible talks about not living in the fear of men and not being people pleasers. So we should be true to who God has made us to be. I am with that. The problem is I'm a word geek, so I love words, and you just can't dilute certain things and make it your own. So the problem is it says live your truth, and some quotes you'll see is live your truth no matter who it hurts or who it offends. And that gets dangerous, real dangerous. You can't dilute that word. Um, So truth has been downgraded, in my opinion. Here we go. To our opinions, our preferences, and our perspective. And that's not truth. Truth is something outside of you that you have to deal with whether you like it or you don't. That's just the way truth works. Uh, My wife lets me know the truth a lot now. And I'm like, oh, that's the truth now. Okay, I I wasn't the truth when I was a bachelor. But it is now. You've changed truth for me. So anyways... (laughs) And it's okay. It's a blessing. Um, and then the, the problem with this, I mentioned a second ago, is it assumes our authentic self is a hero, is this noble person, is this great, awesome person who would save all of humanity. I'm not going to be, I'm not going to say all this together. I don't want to be mean. I'll just talk about myself. And next service when my wife is here, she'll be going, amen. If I was my authentic self away from Christ, this never mentions Christ, so I have to assume it's talking about myself without him. Myself without Christ is lazy, boring, lustful, arrogant, and altogether just miserable. That's me living my truth. But instead, what we do is we live in accordance to the truth himself. John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. We live in accordance to the truth, and by his truth, he's given us in the word. Correct? We don't like that as humans, but it's about submission and pledging allegiance to him. This next phrase is, Probably my favorite, I want to say this off the get-go, I'm dogging on phrases, not people, okay? Next phrase is this, love is love. Here's the thing, it's a definition is what it is, and again, I'm a word geek, so I love this sort of stuff. It doesn't work, because there's one simple principle for defining things, and you can't use the word that's being defined to define the word. It's unclear, that's another principle, it has to be clear, has to make sense, so love is love doesn't make sense. Here's the thing, imagine I was playing guitar today, I do that sometimes. I try. I just grin. Um, and then so um, after I'm done, somebody comes up to me and goes, hey, what is a guitar? Like, what is it? And I go, well, you know, man, a guitar is a guitar. <laughs> I mean, have I helped you? I haven't done anything for you. I haven't helped you one bit. I've confused you more than anything. I haven't told you where guitars come from, how they were created. You don't have to know all this if you play guitar or really anything. But like, I haven't, t- I haven't helped you distinguish what a guitar is from an acoustic or a bass or a piano or singing. I mean, you could think a cake is a guitar. I mean, you can make it anything you want. It just doesn't work. And so let, let's get a, a bit more. Uh, this will be, I'll get more in trouble next service for this. But if my wife were to ask me, her birthday's in a few weeks, okay? October 31st, it's Halloween. I call her my spooky woman, whatever. We're, we're not going to talk about that. Um, but, but anyways, so I say things. This is why I get to preach like once every three to six months. Um, anyways, but um, the youth get this every week, by the way. So um, imagine on her birthday, October 31st, after church and before trunk or treat, we go out and we just have a date. We have our own time. At, you know, we have, we have brunch. She loves brunch. We have, uh, we go watch a movie. We go to antique shops. We went antique shopping yesterday, and, well, that went downhill quick. Um, and so um, it was fun. It was fun. She got a lot of stuff she likes. Um, but, uh, and then we're ending it at Scissortail Park before we come back up here, and we're sitting on a picnic blanket, and we have food there, and she turns to her side, and she goes, Corbin, what is it you love about me? 
And the men, whether you're in a, whatever sort of relationship, you're going to know that this is bad. If I looked at her and said, well, you know, I love you because I love you. I mean, failure for the day. I mean, I have messed up royally. I have to tell her why, right? Well, I love you because I love you. What? I mean, give me some better reasons why. And so I should tell her, hey, I love you because you're the most tenacious yet gentle woman I've ever met, right? I love you because you're the only person who can calm down this ADHD boy. The only person. Ask Ethan and Justin, all right? Nobody can. Only she can, right? And the Lord, of course. He'll just tell me to be quiet. But like, and she does that too, but and nicer. Um, anyway, so, but, uh, but then 1 John 4, 8 is clear. We have a not love is love. It says God is love. So it's defining it. Right now, what our culture does is flips it and says love is God. It is not. You can't flip that phrase. It doesn't work both ways. God is love. And then, it, then he, it shows us what love looks like, but he sent his son to die for us so we might find life in him. So it's defining it for us. It's making it very, very clear. And then it says, because of what he's done for us in Jesus Christ, this is why we are to love others and lay our life down for them. It's just clear, right? Love is love just doesn't define anything. God is love does. So we learned that these cliches cannot work as uh, mantras for life. They work on social media. They don't work in reality. But I want to shift gears because we do the same thing in Christian culture. We have our own little cliches that we use. And we think they're so deep and they're not. And for people, two things. There are Christians who say it to other Christians and it does nothing for them. And there are people who are unbelievers and we say some little cliche to them that we think is biblical and we'd be surprised. I'm going to read you a list of some things you might think are in the Bible and they're not. We read these things to them, we say these things to them, and we just look foolish. And we'll say, well, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. And it's an excuse. We have to think about what we say as Christians. So I'm challenging my Christians here, and then I want to encourage those who may have been misled or hurt by a phrase we're going to mention after I read you some here real quick. So y'all ready to hear some cliches that we say in the Christian church? I guarantee you've heard 99% of them. You ready? One, God helps those who help themselves. You clearly don't read the Bible, okay? Because if you read Romans 5, what does it say? When we were weak and sinners, we were helping ourselves, all right? But to sin, we were helping ourselves to idolatry and doing those sorts of things. God does not help those who help themselves. It's legalism. In some ways, that's arrogant. Like, I help myself, so God help me. It does not work. It does not measure up to the Bible. And here's the thing. Uh, two things. If you want to talk to me after service and I'm wrong, do it. Email corbina326 at gmail.com. Email me, okay, please. I, I want to hear. Second one. Parents use this one a lot. Cleanliness is next to godliness. What? What are we saying? We sound wacko sometimes. We, you hear it a lot. Cleanliness is next to godliness. Parents, there's other ways to get your kids to clean. Here's the thing. This is, I'm being funny, but I want to be deep. What about places where cleanliness is not possible? What about that? I'm not saying we have to overthink everything, but what about places where people are actually getting saved, kingdom work is being done, but it is in disgusting places, what we would say as Americans. It doesn't work, and it sends the wrong message about our God, that God just wants clean people. He does not. None of us would be here. Here we go. I'm going to get into some weird ones. I don't understand this at all. If you take one step, God will take two. What? What are we saying? I mean, I don't understand this. Like, I know you're going through a rough time, buddy, but here's the thing. You just got to step out. If you take one step, God will take two. Thanks for nothing. I mean, you did, you did nothing for me there. Second one. This is my least favorite. When I hear this one, I have to walk away because I get mad. and I'm like, it's, a, it's an arrogant thing. God, I'm so sorry. When, when we say this, when God closes a door, he opens a window. 
What is happening there? You know what that is? Two things. I heard one pastor say, that's all fine and dandy unless you're on the 12th floor of a building. Like, what is God telling you? And that, I was like, that's pretty deep, pastor, but okay. Um, second thing is, is that, you know what that is? That's called pulling a Matthew McConaughey. He says a lot of things that sound so great, like in his Lincoln commercials. You think about him for half a second and you go, that makes no sense at all. What are we saying? It's these little mamby-pamby things we come up with and it does nothing for the kingdom. Nothing. Here we go. Don't be so heavenly-minded that you're no earthly good. Get the heart behind it. Don't want to be a total meanie head today. But actually, if you read the Bible, the, the reason we are earthly good is because we're heavenly-minded, right? And not the present heaven, but when God comes and he restores everything, this is what makes us earthly good. I get the heart behind it, though. Um, here we go. Do your best, and God will do the rest. I mean, I get that, kind of, um, but I don't think it works. Last one is, thank you, Carrie Underwood, Jesus, take the wheel. Here's the problem. If he was in the driver's seat in the first place, you wouldn't have had to ask him to take the driver's seat and take the wheel. Anyways, now we're getting Pentecostal. Anyways, but here's what this looks like. Now, if you're an unbeliever, I get it. You got to let him in the driver's seat. But for Christians, when you're saying, Jesus, take the wheel, I'm like, isn't he already driving it? Shouldn't he be? You're in the passenger seat. You're not even, you're not even in this seat. You're in like in the back seat, in like a booster seat. It's what you're in. Anyways, whatever. So here we go. So what this looks like, though, all these little phrases, it looks like our own version of good vibes only, follow your heart. Live your truth, and love is love. It looks like our own Christian culture version of that. Things that sound so cool, we just say, and we have like a file cabinet of things in a situation, we pull this out and say this. It does nothing for anyone. I'm not angry. I hope I don't sound that way. Here we go. So it's simple little phrases that make us feel good, but they have no depth. They don't have any root in Scripture or the good news that Jesus is the saving king. It's nothing for anyone. So I specifically avoided one phrase just so we could talk about it. I don't want to dog on the phrase, just to dog on a phrase, and once again, just sound smart and arrogant, like I think I know it all. That's not it. I just don't think it does a lot for the kingdom. Um, I want to challenge us Christians just to think about what we say. Is our, is our Christian culture wrong on some things that it's produced? Is it wrong? We have to be able to critique that. We want to critique secular culture. We need to do it to Christian culture even more. So, and I want to encourage those who have been hurt or misled by this as well. Y'all ready for the phrase? God won't give you more than you can handle. Um, you've been alive for 10 seconds. You know that's probably not true, right? Here we go. This is the verse we get it from, though. It is scriptural, and I think in a certain context it works. So we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 10, starting in verse 12. This is where we get this idea. I'll give you guys a minute to get there. All righty, here we go. 1 Corinthians 10. Starting in verse 12, this is Paul. He says, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation, key there, no temptation is overtaking you except what is common to man. God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. This is where we get this idea. And in regards to temptation, we'll see it works. But in regards to life in general, this phrase does not work. Here we go. So Paul's reminding the Corinthians of the Israelites' past in this section, their idolatry, primarily when they worshiped the golden calf, but they, they had so many different forms of idolatry in the wilderness. And this is because the Corinthians have a hodgepodge of issues in their church. One, they're suing fellow Christians, and you're supposed to have this, this authentic image of unity. And when you're, felt, when you're suing each other, it doesn't really give the image of God's kingdom to other people. It just looks like everywhere else. 
Secondly, um, there are lots of sexual sins going on there. My, my watch thinks I'm working out, by the way. Um, so there, there's lots of sexual sins going on. They're like, you don't do a lot, bro, so they see my arm moving. So there's lots of sexual sins happening in there as well, some weird stuff happening. And then there's this spiritual superiority where some people are like, well, I was baptized by Paul. I was baptized by Apollos. I was baptized by Peter. And there's all this spiritual superiority, and, and Paul's saying it's pointless. But I want us to notice that this verse is strictly about temptation, not a general statement about our lives. So it's true when we're talking about temptation. So there's good news and there's bad news with this verse. I'll give you the good news first because we're people of the good news. So here we go. Good news. There is not one temptation you ever endure that God has not provided a way to run away from it and run towards him. Right? That's the good news. And I understand that there is a depth to addiction. I understand these things. I don't make it seem just super simplistic. But according to the Bible, there's not one temptation we ever give into that there wasn't a way out of. Right? And that God is right there with us. And so there's bad news, though. Okay, this is the, kind of the rougher side of it. There's not one temptation we ever give in to that we can blame God for or anyone else. Two things. One, you ate too much, don't blame Golden Corral. Okay? <laughs> you could say, well, they, they gave me the opportunity to eat as much as I want. You still made the choice to eat. And by the way, I don't know why we call it Golden Corral. It should be called, like, Bronze Corral. Or something like, well, here's a participation trophy corral. I mean, like, it's just, it's not good. There's nothing golden about it. Anyway, that's just me. That's not gospel. That's just Corbin being picky. Um, here's another thing. This goes for men and women. Uh, you look too long at someone, you thought some thoughts, that ain't on them. You can blame them all day for the way they're dressed, and there might be some things they need to personally take for that, okay? But guys, let me just use some examples. Guys, you look at Scarlett Johansson a little too long, you can say, well, it's because of the suit she wears in Avengers, and that broke your fault. Like, like, it's your fault for doing that. She has her own things to take and whatever, but it's your fault for looking too long. And then ladies, um, you look at Thor, right? Right? Working his muscles out, and he's always Thor, not sore Thor, anyway, whatever. whatever. Um, so but you're looking at him too long. You can't blame him for working out and for wearing the shirts he wears. And once again, he has his own personal responsibility. But you can't blame him. It's on us, right? We're always one to throw the blame at somebody else, and normally it's us. So, but this phrase isn't used very often in regards to temptation, though, is it? It's not. Imagine a situation with me. Um, a friend wants to have coffee with you or dinner or something like that. And they just want to talk about life, where they're at, what they're going through. And so you sit down, they talk with you, and they tell you five awful things that have happened. One, um, their spouse had an affair, okay? Tried to make the marriage work. It just didn't. They've left now with that person. They've left. Now, the kids don't want to talk to them at all. They don't want to have anything to do with them whatsoever. Um, their parents have recently passed away. Um, they're losing their house. They're losing their car. And then we, in our infinite wisdom, sometimes sit there, rather than sitting in silence, we're having nothing to say. We, we, I don't know why when we get saved, we think we're somehow Christian philosophers like that. I don't understand how that happens. But we look at that person and we say, well, you know, when God closes the door, he opens the window. What are you doing for that person? Second, then we, then we say this phrase, well, God won't give you more than you can handle. You know what that person's thinking? Uh, bogus. <laughs> like, that's happening. Like, that's, do you really believe that? I, he's definitely giving me more than I can handle. And even if it's not from him, he's allowing it to happen. Why is he letting this happen? It does not work. It sounds like James 2, 15 through 16, which says this. If a brother or sister is without clothes and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, stay warm, and be well fed, but you don't give them what the body needs, what good is it? Amen. And I'm going to ask that about this phrase. What good is it? What good does it do? Except give us an easy answer for a really hard situation. Yeah. It's like sprinkles. It's colorful, there's no flavor, there's nothing to it, there's no depth, right? There's nothing to it. 
So why not actually bear one another's burdens, which the Bible tells us to do? Actually bear that burden. Not just throw out a phrase. Again, your file cabinet, pick it out. Well, this is the right situation. Right? Bear their burdens. Why not actually be inconvenienced out of love for someone else? Why not sit in silence with someone who is hurting? And why not stop pretending that now that we know Jesus, we have all the answers? The very fact that we are with Jesus should prove we don't. We've admitted I don't have all the answers. For some reason, like I said, we think we're these Christian philosophers and we have to have all these great answers for things. And most of the time we won't. And lastly, as the Bible says, why not weep with those who weep? Why not do that? It's biblical, it's what we're called to do. Not burn the file cabinet of all our cheesy statements and actually love people. So I get the heart behind the phrase. I really do. I really do. I'm not saying if you've said it that you failed God or anything like that. I don't want to give that impression. That's not it. I just don't think it works biblically. I think there's something better we could say. There's just maybe sometimes we just don't have things to say. And this is why I don't think it's biblical. I just want to give you some examples of some people. First, Abraham. Let's go with one of the typical guys. Abraham. All right. He is promised a son by whom multitudes are going to come through, and a one particular is going to come through, one offspring is going to come through to restore everything the way it's meant to be, right? A savior, a messiah. He's promised this. After he gets the son, which he was really old when that happened, um, which that would have been more than he could handle, um, especially his wife, they were both pretty old. Um, after that happens, God asks him to do what? I think most of us know, to sacrifice him, right? Now, we know the end of the story, so we know what happens, but do you think that would have been a bit much for Abraham to handle? Like, you've promised me this, and then you asked me to sacrifice the very one, and the only one that's supposed to bring all these promises about. You want me to sacrifice him? That's a lot. And God himself asked him to do it. You have Joseph, who's beaten by his own brothers and put into slavery. He makes his way up in Potiphar's house, but then he gets falsely accused of something he didn't do and gets thrown in prison. He's there for at least two years, at least. And then he, he ends up going to the right hand of Pharaoh. But that still would have been a whole lot for him to handle, whether it's the good or the bad parts, right? Being at the right hand of Pharaoh is a whole lot to handle. There's Moses, who had to lead at least 600,000 people. That's a lot. Um, I went to an FCA thing about two Saturdays ago now. We only had 38 kids. And I questioned my salvation, okay? Like, if there was a, a rock for me to hit for water, too, I would have got angry as well. I would have smacked the heck out of that rock. I really would have. Six, at least 600,000 people. That's just counting men. We don't know. It had to be probably over a million. We're not quite sure, but something like that. Anyways, there's Gideon, right? Gideon's probably one of the best examples. Um, he is called to, if, if I'm, somebody call me out if I'm wrong, but it's the Midianites who are oppressing his people. And he's called to defeat them, to take them out, to at least get them away from the Israelites. And so he gets an army, and my math is right. It was 32,000 Israelites. But God specifically says to him, hey, if, if y'all go against the Midianites, you're going to think it's you who did it because there's a lot of people. And so you're going to take credit for it and you're going to feel good about yourself. But my thing is, is I want you to depend on me. Not because I'm cruel or I'm an egomaniac, but I've created you to depend on me. So I, I want you to know this. So he says, okay, take him, um, go up to your 32,000 men and say, anyone who is afraid or trembling, say you can go home. Typical dudes, 22,000 leave. Okay, he's down to 10,000 if my math is correct. Okay, they leave, they go home. 10,000. Then God says, you know what? 10,000 is still way less than the Midianites, but still you could find some way to boast in this. And so just go down to a brook and see the way they drink. And if they drink one way, let them go home. They drink another way, let them stay. Only 300 are left after that. 
against an entire army. And if I'm right, they don't even fight the army. They just like bang on some drums and blow some trumpets and stuff, and the army runs. Like they don't do anything. It was way more than they could handle. We got Jonah. So sometimes we have some examples of this where it doesn't, it's not, doesn't end great for them. It's not, it doesn't show how great this person is. Jonah is called to preach to the Ninevites, who would have been one of Israel's arch enemies. And if you read what the Ninevites did to people, to children, to animals, and how their culture worked, you would understand why Jonah runs. He says, of all people who don't deserve God's salvation, it's those people. It's too much for him to handle, so he ran the other way, and then we know a big fish swallowed him and, and spit him out and all that stuff. This is a typical one, but I think it's fair. David and Goliath, that was just kind of right in our face. We hear it all the time. Goliath was way too much for David to handle. You really think that one little stone did something? I think, the God, I think God had something to do with that, right? A little pebble took him out? I don't think so. I think that God had something to do there. We got, let's go New Testament. You're like, that's the Old Testament. New Testament's different. Here we go. Mary, the mother of Jesus. You think that was a lot for her to handle? Betrothed to someone, and then she gets pregnant? You know people would be talking. Imagine Facebook. Like, if she was some popular person and this happened, like, well, something's going on. The tabloids, all that stuff. Probably a little much for her to handle, right? And this is something God called her to, and it was more than she could probably handle. Of course, I'm assuming in some ways. It just seems like a lot. Um, you got to be careful here, but it looks like Jesus himself had some moments. And, uh, he's truly God, truly man, but in his humanity, there were moments that were overwhelming for him. In Mark 14, it says he's deeply distressed and grieved. There's a moment outside Lazarus' tomb where Jesus knows. He's, he knows. I mean, he knows it's going to happen. He's going to resurrect him. But if something happens, he gets overwhelmed, and he weeps. Shortest verse in the Bible, uh, John eleven thirty five. Jesus wept. It seems that even he had those moments, even in Gethsemane when he seems to sweat blood. And then Paul as well. I want to read from the scripture, though, what Paul went through. And this is him following God's um, call on his life, okay? This isn't before Jesus. This is post-Jesus with, and with Jesus with him. Here we go. The type on here is super big, and it's super small here, so i got to do this. Here we go. Five times I received the 40 lashes minus one from the Jews. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I received a stoning. Three times I was shipwrecked. I have spent a night and a day in the open sea. On frequent journeys, I faced dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers at sea, and dangers among false brother, uh, brothers. Toil and hardship, many sleepless nights, hunger and thirst, often without food, cold, and without clothing. Not to mention other things, there's the daily pressure on me, my concern for all the churches. Who is weak, and I am not weak? Who is made to stumble, and I do not burn with indignation? If the worship team would please come. I think the question is on this sort of stuff. We see a lot of these people were following, I think pretty much most of them were following God's call on their life or running from it in regards to Jonah. So we see that when God calls us into something, it seems he purposely does call us into something we cannot handle. And so I think the question would be raised then, why does he do that? Is he mean? Is he an egomaniac? Do you just want me to suffer? What's happening? Why, why, why is he like this? And I think this is it. I think it's to break through the mirage that we were meant and created to be autonomous or to be our own thing, to be self-sustaining. I think it's to break through that mirage. He's not being cruel. He's just, he's created us for himself so that he might be with us and lead us and guide us. And so when we get into this idea that we're supposed to be big, buffed, and just awesome, and we're the ones that are supposed to handle everything and solve all the problems he wants to go, that is not it. That is a huge burden to carry. And Jesus tells us, come to me, all who are weary, have heavy burdens on your shoulders. Come to me. And so 
And there's a, a quote, and I think this is kind of out of context, but we, we read this out of context a lot. It's a poem called Believe Invictus. And the last line is, which you take out of context, is I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. I don't think that's true. If you're the master and captain, you don't know what's going to happen in five seconds. Right? We don't. I don't. I'm not, it's not just you, me and you. We don't, we don't know. And if we're the master of our fates, we're pretty cruel masters sometimes to our own selves, to our own fates. And then we're captains that really have no idea the waters we're going through, and we might go into treacherous waters. We don't know how to get out. Even when it's calm, we don't really know what to do. We need somebody to lead us. Rather than being the captain, we're just a passenger on the boat. We need to trust the captain. Um, a story that happened to me whenever I was in um, college, I had a work-study job, so in the summer, I'm broke. I don't have any money. And so my pa, he, he just recently retired, but he used to build homes in Shawnee, homes by Rick Austin. I mean, that's a name drop. I don't know why I did that. But anyways, um, Homes by Rick Austin. And so what I would do is I would clean his homes throughout the summer. And I mean, for a college kid, I mean, it was good money. I don't supposed to say this, but it's also under the table money, so no taxes. You know what I'm saying? And I was a college kid. I didn't even know what taxes were. I, was just, I didn't know I was doing anything wrong. So like, um, but what happened is my very first home I ever worked on, it was after they had done brickwork on a house. And this house was big, very big. And so he's like, here's the first one. It's in the middle of summer, by the way. He's, this, is, this is the first one I want you to do. And if I were to do this, you know, just so I kind of know, so you know how I'm expecting you to do this, is I would expect this to be done in about two days. Um, and I was like, okay. And so we get there, and he shows me like a wheelbarrow that I have there. Barrow? Barrel? Anyways. A wheelbarrow that I have, and I, I just put bricks in there, and I'm supposed to take them to a dumpster, and then throw them in there, and then go back, get more, and then keep doing that over and over. Um, he leaves me there. I don't have a car at the time. He leaves me there, and within two hours, I realize... This is rough. Like, this is going to be hard. It's going to be very hard. Because brickwork, if you've ever seen it, I mean, I have no knowledge whatsoever. I just know what the mess looks like. Brickwork, especially on uh, a big house or whatever, I mean, there's a whole lot of brick around there. A whole lot. And so I start picking this stuff up, and I'm trying to be serious, but at the same moment, I mean, I'm crying my eyes out. Because I, I can't, I mean, I've been working on it for hours. I, I think I worked eight hours the first day, and I had to made a dent in it. Not one. I was like, oh my goodness. I get out there a second day and I'm like, okay, he said he did it in two days when he was my age. I gotta, I gotta impress my grandpa that I'm just as tough as he is or anything like that. Failed. Okay. I couldn't do it. I barely made it dent the next day. And I mean, I'm working hard, crying my eyes out most of the time, but I'm working hard and I couldn't do it. I couldn't. And so I was too um, arrogant and embarrassed to ask for help. I went and asked him for help, and he had told me beforehand, when I drop you off and we do this, if, if after a couple days you're not getting it done, because I know it's really hard, and I've kind of worked on these sorts of homes my whole life, so I just kind of know the pace I need to go at. And I'm pretty sure he was like probably 65 at this time. He still would have been better at it than I was. It's like 20 probably is how old I was. He still would have been better. But he offered the very first day, if it gets rough, I'll bring a tractor, and we'll just load stuff into the tractor, we'll go dump it, and then we'll go back and load it in, keep dump- and it'll go by really quick, probably in two or three hours we'll get it done. But I was too focused on embarrassing myself and not being able to handle something. I didn't ask him for help. And so eventually he kind of had to guilt me into it, right? He goes, hey, I'm, I mean, it's not going to be okay if I help you with this. It's going to be fine. And so I ended up letting him do it. And I'm telling you, it was raining on us for a bit, but we got it done in three hours after he came and helped me. But there was two things I had to do in this situation. I had to admit I needed help, and I had to receive the help. Admit it, had to receive it. In this situation, I didn't admit it as well as I had hoped to. Like, just fall before my grandpa's feet and go, hey, I couldn't do it. Help me, please. Get the tractor right now and give me a burger or something. I'm about to pass out, man. Like, help me. So, and I, but I couldn't. And he had to kind of get me to that. But I had to admit it and I had to receive it. 
But I think biblically there's something else we need to do, especially as Christians. I don't see how you really could do this outside of being a believer. And this is it. It's um, We get to boast in our need for help. Really what this phrase is, is it means I can handle all things, right? And we have a verse, Philippians 4.13, that says I can do all things. Really what we think that means is I can handle all things. I can just put my mind on something and go, well, there's a 10-foot cake there. I can eat that. I can do all things to Christ who strengthens me. Like it's not, it's not where God puts me. It's where I put myself. But we get to boast in our need for our help. And I um, just want to show that with Scripture. 2 Corinthians 12, starting in verse 7. Paul says, therefore, so that I would not exalt myself. He's talking about visions and revelations that he's seen as well. So that he wouldn't get boastful. A thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to torment me so that I would not exalt myself. Concerning this, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it would leave me. If you're pleading, it's more than you can handle. You don't just plead when it's just kind of hard. When it's super hard, you cannot do it, you plead. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is perfected in weakness. Therefore, I will most gladly boast all the more about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may reside in me. So I take pleasure in weaknesses, I take pleasure in insults, in hardships, persecutions, and in difficulties for the sake of Christ. Because of what Christ has done for me and what he suffered, I'm willing to suffer these things for him. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So my question is, where are we today? Are we at a place where we need to admit we need help? Are we at a place where we need to receive some sort of help? Or are we in a place where as Christians we need to boast in the one who has helped us? If you wouldn't mind standing, bow your heads, please. This podcast is now over. Make sure to subscribe so you don't miss out on future messages.